Father in heaven, we thank you uh, for this chance to be here today. Lord, often we come and we, we pray for your Holy Spirit, and we really do mean that, but help us today, Lord, to, to understand that prayer and what we're really saying. Send your Spirit to us, but help us know. In Jesus' name, amen. As you know, we, in the days of prayer, spent time in the book of Acts. And on the Sabbath, we've been bringing messages out of the book of Acts. And we're going to do that again today, and we'll continue that again next Sabbath as well. But if you were here last Sabbath, you remember that we ended in Acts chapter 4. And with a story in Acts chapter 4, where, where Peter and John go up to the temple, and they heal a man, and, and this becomes big news, and people start joining the community. And this is very distressing to the leaders, so they take Peter and John away, they keep them incarcerated overnight, they bring them out, and they really, they try to intimidate them into being quiet. And you remember we ended that story, uh, Pastor Julie pointed out very well last Sabbath, that they go away and they pray, but they don't pray, Lord, protect us from these crazy people. They pray, Lord, help us to be bold. Help us to speak with boldness. And one of the last verses we read last Sabbath was Acts 4, verse 31. It says, And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. You ever wished in your heart to be a part of a community, a part of an experience like this where the Holy Spirit came in such a powerful way that the place where they were was shaken? It goes on, verse 32, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need." Now, we're going to talk a little more about how they had arranged themselves and, and what they were doing to support each other next Sabbath, and we'll look at Acts 2 as well. But one of the points I want you to see in this is it's, it's not so much that what the Bible is spelling out here is exactly how churches ought to do things, but rather showing the principles of what churches need to be aware of. And the common good of the family of God is one of the things the church needs to be aware of. And uh, each church has to find a way to do that, as well as find ways to reach out for the good of others around them. Now, they were doing a specific thing at this time. And in the long run, what's interesting about what they were doing actually was, uh, well, I mean, long-term, Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans, right? So the fact that, uh, that they were selling property at that point, really in the long term, was, was a grace that God kind of gave them because in the end it wasn't going to be anybody's anymore anyway. But they were making these sales and they were, and they were combining these. And, and, and let me say in the context of that, there are people in this community who've done the same thing for the common good of this community. There are folks among us who have sold property or stocks or other things 
And they've brought that money and put it at the feet of the community, and, and it's become a part of this building project that we've done. So this dynamic still works amongst God's people today. But there's something that happens uh, when someone does this. It, it, when the, whenever a really gracious act like this takes place, it has an impact in the community, and it did in those days as well. We keep reading in verse 36, <clears throat> and Joseph who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite from the country of Cyprus. Just an aside here, Barnabas is going to become an important character. He's never the lead character, but he's always the important character alongside. He's with Paul. He's with Mark. He gets sent by the Jerusalem council. He's an important guy in this community, but he's known as the son of encouragement. Isn't that an amazing title? Wouldn't you love that to be what people said about you? Oh, you mean the son of encouragement? Yeah, what a great guy. So, so it says, and, and Joseph, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, a Levite from the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. The community inevitably holds people in high regard who do gracious acts like this. And it's appropriate that the community should hold people like that in high regard. It's appropriate, but it's also dangerous. It's particularly dangerous to the ones who make the gift. Because, because sometimes we start to associate the giving of money with esteem within the house of God. And this is very dangerous because what it suggests is that in the house of God, you can buy favor. Now, Pastor Tim, you mentioned this in your offering appeal. That's exactly what you were talking about, is we don't buy favor with our gifts. Instead, we return our tithes because it's a portion of what God has given, and we give our offerings because it's a reflection of how we've been blessed. We're not paying anything. We're not buying anything. We're contributing to the life of the community. But the problem is sometimes the esteem that comes to those who do it becomes an infection in the mind of some who would like higher standing. And I want to suggest to you that that's, that's the background of this story that we're going to look at that starts in chapter 5. In verse 1 it says, But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira his wife sold a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, it's not inherently wrong to sell property, keep some of the money for things you need to do, and give the rest of the church. You're allowed to do that, okay? Anyone can do that because it's, it's yours to do that with. However, the problem in this story is... Not that they wanted to keep a portion of the proceeds, but rather they wanted to be esteemed in the community as though they were, in fact, giving the same way Barnabas had. So this is the core problem here. There is a core deception taking place. We go on, verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? Now notice what he says to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself. While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. See, Ananias in his heart is thinking, ah, what they don't know won't hurt them. 
And they really should appreciate us for what we do. But Peter says, it's not about that, Ananias. You're not lying to us. You're lying to the Holy Spirit. You're lying to God. We pray for the Holy Spirit to to be present, to be with us, and so forth. But sometimes I think we forget something incredibly important about the Holy Spirit. We shouldn't forget it because it's part of the name. But here it is. The Spirit is holy. Okay? We forget that, don't we? We think of Holy Spirit as a title, as a name. But, But the Spirit is holy. There's an interesting story, just a brief little comment of Jesus that takes place in the book of Luke. It's also mentioned in in another gospel, but but in the book of Luke, chapter 12, verse 10, we find these words, and anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. Now, I want to stop there for just a second because, because the whole notion of speaking a word against Jesus is, is a very unpleasant notion to me, so much so that I don't even want to give you an example of what that might look like. But what is being said here is even as, as inappropriate and wrong as it would be to speak a word against Jesus, that can be forgiven you. But listen to this next part. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. These are interesting words that Jesus uses, isn't it? Now, in the context of what's taking place here, what's actually going on is Jesus is addressing the reality where people are, are saying that the works that Jesus is doing are actually being done by the devil. And that's the context in which the Holy Spirit is being blasphemed in the saying of this. And, and, and that's what Jesus is addressing specifically. But what I want you to take from that is this realization that the Spirit is holy and and we shouldn't be stomping around lying and acting as humans often act in the context of the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit is not to be taken lightly so we go back to this story and this is one of those stories that seems very harsh to us it's like what is this Old Testament story doing in the New Testament well we keep reading here Acts 5 verse 5 then Ananias Hearing these words, Peter said, you haven't lied to us, you've lied to the Holy Spirit and to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last, and the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. The problem here is that the Holy Spirit is present in power, yet these believers in the church are testing the holiness of God. Sometimes I fear that we become just a little too comfortable around God. 
Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not suggesting to you God doesn't love you. I'm not saying he doesn't call you. I'm not saying he doesn't forgive. But what I want to remind you today is he is holy and we are not. Often you hear the question, why doesn't God do through us the same miracles he did through the early church? Now let me suggest to you what I think might be an answer to this. It's his mercy. Because in order for the Holy Spirit to be present with us the way the Spirit was present with that original early group, well, let's just say it might not go well for some of us who like to test the Spirit. You see, I think God stays a little bit further back from us because we're not really sure we want to be in the presence of holiness. Oh, we want to hang around it. We want to be at the edge of it. I want to be holy on Sabbath. Friday night's good. Maybe Wednesdays. But all the other days I have plans. For the Spirit to really be in our lives and in our church in power means that we really need to be committed to God's purpose in our lives the whole way. I want to suggest to you that it's his mercy that keeps these great works from happening because the great works require his presence and he is holy and he doesn't want to destroy us. There's a couple stories from the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. Now this is right before chapter 20 and you remember what happens in Exodus chapter 20. God gives the law. So this is as Israel is all gathered around on Mount Sinai. And God is about to come down on the mountain in all the fullness of His holiness and glory. And Exodus chapter 19, verse 21 says, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to gaze at the Lord, and many of them perish. God in His mercy said, I want all of you to stay away from this mountain right now because I'm about to come to it in the fullness of my holiness. And you, in the reality of your fallenness, cannot stand in the presence of my holiness. So stay back, because I don't want you to die. And he goes further. He says, also let the priests who come near the Lord, because they were to do that, also let the priests who come near the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. So this idea of the Lord breaking out against them, this is the, the reality of the holiness of God will destroy sin. That's just how it works. And what he's saying is, if you come too close into the presence of the holiness of God on your own in your sinfulness, it's not that God is mean, it's the simple reality that the holiness of God will destroy sinfulness. So don't get too close. There's another story that's found in Leviticus chapter 10 that specifically deals with the subject of priests. It says, let the priests who come near consecrate themselves. Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it. These were priests. 
put incense on it and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. So Nadab and Abihu had been given this very honored position of, of serving as priests, yet, yet they did not respect the holiness of God. And they did it their own way. And when they came in there, the holiness of God just couldn't be in the presence of their sin. And the fire broke out from the presence of the Lord. There's another story. Maybe you've thought of it already. 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 3. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of fir wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, sistrums and cymbals. And when they came to to Nahon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he named the place, and he called the, the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So what's going on here? God had told them how they were to move the ark. They were not doing it the way God had told them. They were not respecting the holiness of the Lord. Now, Uzzah's just trying to help, right? Sticks out his hand. But it's not about whether you're trying to help or not. It's are you respecting the holiness of the Lord? Too often, we ask for the presence of the Holy Spirit as if the Holy Spirit were just kind of a fun thing. Oh, and Lord, send your Spirit. That would be fun. The Holy Spirit is not for your amusement. The Holy Spirit is not the magic kingdom. Here's the thing about God and the Holy Spirit. It's not even as simple as saying... God is on my side. Joshua chapter 5. Whoops, wrong way. Joshua chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and said, Are you for us? or for our adversaries. So he said, no. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Now, what you need to understand in this story, Joshua sees this fighting man who's greater than any he's ever seen. And he says, man, I hope this guy's on our side. And he goes and he says, are you on our side? And he says, it's not about your side. I'm not about the petty fightings of humans. I am commander of the Lord's army. 
and I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take your sandal off your foot for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. So, so here's what I take from this. We should not be laboring in our prayers to get God on our side. We should be laboring in our prayers to get ourselves on God's side. Okay, when you're praying, the one who needs the most help is not God. The one who needs the most advice and direction is not God. It's you. And the point of the prayer is not to convince God to change his mind and get on your side in your argument with your enemy. The point is for you to get on God's side. This is why revival must also always be associated with reformation. When the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and we are revived, we are not revived and left where we are. We are revived and transformed. It goes together. But here's the thing. God in His mercy will come no nearer to us than we can endure. Do not pray to be filled with the Holy Spirit if you are still hanging on to things that you know are incompatible with the presence of the Spirit of God. Now, I'm not saying you're going to be perfect, but I am saying if you're still trying to hang on to those things, you're double-minded. You're trying to do two things. God is merciful. He will stay back so that the presence of His holiness does not consume you. And here's the other thing on this. We would never be able to be in the presence of God were it not for the provision God makes for us. And the perfect illustration of this takes place in Isaiah chapter 6. This is the, the story of when Isaiah first gets his major calling. He's already done some work as a prophet, but verse, six, verse 1 of chapter 6, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, I want to suggest something to you. That if, in fact, right now, God were to appear with the train of his robe filling this place, there would not be one of us that would immediately jump to our feet and say, Lord, are you here to commend me for all my good works? No, this would be our response. Verse 5, So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When we encounter and realize the greatness of God, we're not filled with pride. When the holiness of the Lord is truly revealed in our lives, we ask for the Holy Spirit. All right, are you ready to really see yourself? Woe is me, because I'm a man of unclean lips. But you see, this is the amazing thing. God has made provision. Verse 6. 
Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. All right. So the altar represented the sacrifice. Who is the great sacrifice for our sins? Jesus. So what is depicted here is, first of all, Isaiah encountering the holiness of the Lord and being totally undone in himself. But the angel immediately going to the altar representing Jesus and bringing the coal from the altar representing the blood of Jesus and touching him with it at the very point where he says is his worst problem, unclean lips, touch his lips. This is the blood of Jesus that comes to you in that moment when you realize your reality before the great and holy God. The blood of Jesus comes to you and the angel says, this is atoned for you. Your sins are taken away. But it doesn't end here. See, this is the salvation moment. But it doesn't end here because after this moment, when, when our sins are taken away in Jesus and we're ushered into the presence of God, at this moment we are given a choice. And that's verse 8. It says, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. See, Isaiah made a choice in that moment. He said, Okay. Okay, you've, you've taken care of my sins. I'm overwhelmed by your presence, but you're calling. I'm going to go. Send me. So here's the reality for us that, that fits into this story. Jesus has atoned for your sins. This is the reason Hebrews tells us to come boldly before the throne of grace. It's because Jesus has atoned for your sins. But once you've come boldly before the throne of grace, you will be given a choice. You will be called to an eternal purpose. Do you end the depth of your Christian experience with salvation and forgiveness of sins, or will you press on and accept the mission that God calls you to? That decision will determine to what degree the Holy Spirit will be able to live in your life. If you reject the call of God, then not much. But if you move into that call, God's Spirit will continue to move into you. So let's talk about the priest thing for a second. You remember it said back when, when God was saying, stay back from the mountain, and, and anyone, the priests who approach me must be consecrated. And, and then we had the story of Nadab and Abihu, and they, they did not consecrate themselves. And the whole story related to Uzzah had to do with the fact that it was the priests who were supposed to carry the ark. But here's the reality. We don't have priests anymore. We have pastors, and we have a certain role that we play, but I'm not a priest. Pastor Tim's not a priest. We're not priests. Because after Jesus, who became the priests? Well, Jesus is the high priest, but what did we become? The priesthood of believers. And what point, at what place became the temple? 
Know you not that you are the temple? So the Lord calls all of us to this this priestly ministry now. But to really achieve what the Lord has called us to, we've got to consecrate ourselves. James chapter 4 is where I want us to try to bring this together in a practical way. James chapter 4, verse 1. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desire for pleasure, your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. All right, so so the heart of this is that God is calling us to a life, but we keep hanging on to things we should be letting go. Irene illustrated this really well in her testimony today, didn't she? That here she's experiencing this call of the Lord to a deeper walk, and yet there's a part of her that wants to, okay, but can't I drag this along? And if you've got something like that, you've had this experience before, you'll have it again where the Lord will put it on your heart and it may be 3.30 in the morning when you've got to get yourself up and let it go because you can't drag it with you. And you're going to be stuck where you are until you can. Verse 4, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. I want you to understand that phrase because we tend to say jealousy in in a totally negative sense. But what I want you to understand with this phrase is that God through the Holy Spirit longs for you and is jealous of what you waste on the world. He wants it for His kingdom. He dwells in you jealously. Verse 6, But He gives more grace. Therefore, He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, here's where it gets real practical. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, this isn't saying you're supposed to live the rest of your life depressed and hard to be around. What this is saying is, if you ever truly get a look of God, high, look at God high and lifted up on His throne, this will be the emotion in your heart. You will lament your failings and your weakness. But that's not where it ends. The next verse says, Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and what will happen? He will lift you up. He will lift you up. And you will live a new life in Him.
So what am I trying to say to you? I'm trying to say this. The Holy Spirit is holy. God is great and mighty. And the things that God is calling us to can't coexist with some of the things we're hanging on to. I'm not telling you you're not saved. That's God's call. That's the moment when the coal touches your lips. I'm talking to you about the next moment when God says, who will go for us? That's your decision moment. What are you going to hang on to? What are you willing to let go to be where God wants you to be? I want to give you four things that I think are critical in order for us to move on to where we can be a place where the Holy Spirit dwells. And the first is this. Accept grace through Jesus. It's got to start there. You're you're not good enough. You're not going to be good enough. All right? So it, it, it begins in Jesus. So accept the grace through Jesus. Here's the second one. Agree that God is greater than you. Okay, I mean, really do that. Not just, yeah, 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 whatever. How often are you giving God advice? All right, that's kind of an indicator of, of where you're at on that. Agree that God is greater. Okay, third. Acknowledge that the Spirit is holy. Okay, holiness, rightness, light, goodness, no presence of wrong, no presence of darkness, no hanging on to the things of darkness. The Spirit that we pray to be filled with is holy, and sin is consumed in the presence of holiness. So when the Spirit is rightly doing its work in our heart, the sin in our heart is being consumed by the presence of the Spirit. And then finally, number four, when you pray, ask for the purpose of God's kingdom, not your pleasure. Don't don't have all your prayers about making your life easy, making your life better, making other people be nice to you. No, pray about the purpose of God and how you can be a part of it. These things will make us ready to receive the Holy Spirit that we pray for. Now, God is merciful, but can you imagine the amazing works that would happen in your life and would happen in our lives if we really were ready to receive the Spirit He wants to pour out? We cannot receive His Spirit and stay the way we are today. His Spirit transforms. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we again pray for your Holy Spirit, but we do it a bit more soberly, recognizing that the Spirit is holy and we are not. But Lord, you know every little bit of our hope is in Jesus, and it's the only reason we can speak these words. His sacrifice is sufficient for us all. We receive that grace and that forgiveness of sin, but now again, your Spirit calls to us and you, 
You look on our hearts and you know what's in all of our hearts and what we're hanging on to and what we're not letting go of. Lord, send us your spirit. Give us the courage. Let Irene's story be all of our story as we continue to walk and learn and grow into vessels fit to be filled with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.